Anyways, that's enough for me. That's not really actually. Have to, have to preach. Sorry. If you are, if you can stick up the, we're in the middle, actually just over halfway. This will be our second last week. Next week will be our last week of a resurrection paradox, which is obviously from death to life, and that's what this time of season and this time of year speaks about. If you weren't here for the past two weeks, we had John and Richard, and we talked about looking at actually someone had to die and us for somebody else to live. But also then Richard talked a lot about the the dying to self and what that looks like and, and he shared his stories again from his many gallivants around the globe, which you can you can catch up on, on podcast. But I don't know about you, it's it's quite crazy to think about that right now, even in this moment, you know, this is, this morning is there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people gathered in churches all across this country singing and worshipping the same Jesus that we're singing about. I mean, if we think about the hope that is for the island of Ireland, I mean, that's incredible. And even to think about all across the globe, if there's not millions, but billions of people that are gathered this morning, unless you're in Australia, it was yesterday morning or tomorrow morning, I can't remember. But um, it, it's quite incredible to think that, you know, there's something profound that if you could, I, could, I would love to have a bird's eye view. Well, you would need a, a astronaut's eye view to see actually, and, you know, of the, the sound of worship and the praise that Jesus is getting. There's something quite incredible. That happens every Sunday, but these Sundays, you know, get people who maybe haven't went to church. And I think that's that's quite profound. And it really, really encourages me actually to think that, you know, sometimes we can get bogged down in, in our church, in our town, in our community, but there's something about when we are one church gathered together, what that really does for, for the kingdom, which is which is incredible. So what is a paradox? A paradox and what we've been exploring over the past while is is really when so, obviously we're talking about something had to die in order for something to live, but it's where two truths go together even when they don't appear like they should. Now when I say that, it's not to be mixed or confused with a contradiction. Anybody prone to contradictions or know about contradictions? And it's sometimes, this is where there's two ideas that go together that can't, that actually can't they oppose each other. And a lot of times, you know, people can, can misquote, scripture misquote what God said and actually it, begun, it begins to look as if God has, has created contradictions in, in his word, which obviously we know he hasn't. But in order, I think, and just what I'm going to do this morning, in order to highlight what God did say, sometimes it's quite good to look at, what, at actually what he didn't say which is what we're going to do this morning. Let me tell you some things, and some memes woke up on the page, on the screen, what Jesus didn't say about Easter. He says, blessed are those who wear slick Easter outfits, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I know you're looking really lovely today, right? Your shirts and ties, and you know, or actually, if you're like Adam, you're like smart casual, which is the best way to do it, right? That he also didn't say, as often as you eat together, eat Cadbury cream eggs and Kinder chocolate bunnies in remembrance of me. Now you are welcome, there's cream eggs over there, by the way, okay, so you are welcome to some. Um, or the last one, he says, come follow me, and no one will argue on the way, in the car on the way to Easter services at church. Who did that this morning, right? Who's going to admit? Or who took separate cars just to avoid that, right? Yeah, I know. Too true, too true. If you have kids, you're like, shut up, kids! Hallelujah, right? You're here to come worship Jesus. It's all too true, right? I want to ask you a question. I wonder how many of us have ever done something in our lives that made us feel guilty. Now, I'm not going to get you to put up your hand. I'm not going to do circle time, right? We all get round and pass the ball. We're not going to do that, right? Or I'm not talking about the time, you know, when you step on like a, when I was thinking about this, like a dog's foot and you hear the whine 
and you go, oh, the guilt. For all you dog haters, you're like, I don't really care, to be honest. But there's just something about when you step on a dog's foot. I don't know. Anyways, maybe I need to confess. Um, but I want to look at what Jesus didn't say about guilt and sin, all right? I did some research as I was preparing for this. And one of the, there's many, many types of guilt, you know, in, 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 in you know, earthly speaking terms. But uh, one of the, the top, I guess, guilts that we all, what, what a lot of people said in this research was, was food guilt. Anybody else have food guilt? Anybody ever at like a full packet of biscuits and one sitting and thought, I definitely shouldn't have done that, right? Or Doritos, I don't know, there's just something addictive, no? We wouldn't do that, right? For me, yeah. Yeah, it's fine, it's fine. Actually, people are like, that's not, nothing to be a problem with. I do that all the time. Um, if you're like me, it's Jaffa Kicks. I don't know what it is, but I just inhale those things, right? So you're already you're thinking about the things that you're actually, actually already, you know, you can't wait to go home and all those chocolate and those eggs. You're like, yes, yeah, so I've lost you at this point. So come back, come back. There'll be a prize at the end, right? Um, which is funny. But there's all types of things that make us feel guilty in life, okay? Maybe you're here and you're, you're a new mother and you're due to go back to work and you're feeling really guilty because you have to leave your child off to childcare. Maybe you're here and you've, your kids are all grown up but you can remember the day where you, you first were with them or without them for a long period of time, you maybe felt guilty, you maybe felt whatever it may be. Now, when they hit their terrible twos, you'll, you're like, I'm done. You'll actually leave them with a stranger, probably. But it's like that idea of, you know, we can feel guilty when we leave our kids. Or maybe actually, there's a general type of guilt where in your job or in your, in your, in your studies or whatever it may be, that you don't feel like you're doing a good enough job. Or that actually, maybe you're someone who can't say no to people. Wish you could say no to people, but feel guilty then for saying yes, and then you're caught in this bit of a conundrum, right? Or there's spiritual guilt. Maybe you don't feel like you serve enough, even though I've made you feel guilty if you don't come tomorrow. All right, so I'll make you feel guilty for that. Um, all with an agenda, of course. Or maybe you don't feel like you tithe, en- tithe enough, or you pray enough, or read your Bible enough. There's all types of things spiritually can make us feel guilty. Or maybe you're here, you're that bit older, your kids have grown up, but they don't follow Jesus. And all of a sudden, you're comparing yourself, looking around the others and going, I feel guilty because maybe I did do a good enough job. Maybe you're here, your relationship, your marriage isn't doing the best. You're comparing yourself and you're looking around going, actually, maybe I've done a bad job. Or it can be really simple and you go, I'm a Christian, I'm following Jesus, but you know what? I struggle a bit with my temper. I struggle with keeping myself control and I feel guilty for doing that. There's all of these things muddled together can give us a sense of what I like to call true guilt and false guilt, okay? Eating all those Jaffa cakes, Maybe I say false guilt, right? Because that really pleases me. But these are the times where, <laughs> I know some of you laughed at This is the time actually where we have done something wrong. That's true guilt. But also then with the false guilt is we, we haven't done something wrong, but we feel like we've done something wrong all because of comparison to others. I want to tell you a story. I'm hoping that it relates because it popped in my head. I was preparing. But I, I grew up going to one of the local high schools. It was an all-lads school, which to be honest, when I got to do youth work and was talking to all girls' schools, the man, they can be vicious. So I was glad I went to all guys' school, right? And there's probably somebody, somebody, some teachers here that are thinking, know what I mean, but man, you ladies can be vicious, right? But for us, uh, for us lads, I can remember there was one, this one time where we went through, every lad, I think, just goes through this period of horseplay, right? Where they just jump on top of each other, they, they do pretend digs and so on, and you mess about all, all, the, all the sort of banter. But I remember one particular time when I was actually way back in first year, I was a lot smaller than this, still had the same size feet, and uh, was growing into everything. And uh, I remember I was going to RE of all class, all classes, which is, you know, the Catholic's version of religious education or religious studies, right? And 
I remember going to this class and my one of my good best mates was a guy called James and he was the class clown, okay, the class clampet as we like to call him. And he was a bit of a messer, we all were. And we, like I says, we just this particular time, it was one of the last periods of the day and we just thought, oh, we're going to jump him and we're going to mess about. All right, but what happened was as we piled on, anybody remember pylons, right? As we piled on, there was like, you know, four or five of us and we all piled on. He was at the bottom and you can see his leg hanging out the end type thing, and, you know, just gasping for her. And I remember we messed about. It was all good humour. And he, he, we got up afterwards and he's standing looking at us with his arm like this, with a poor pup and I looked at him and I thought, oh, no. And not to make matters worse, the, the RE teacher in the next room was a bit of a psycho just then. He came in, I'll not tell you his name because he's actually local, <laughs> um, but he came in and he gave us the riot act. James got the poor puppy eyes, got to go home, last class obviously, but he got to go home and we got to run down, we small first years, and I'm thinking, oh no, I felt so bad, I felt so guilty. To make matters worse, the, the teacher then said, if James comes back in tomorrow morning and he ha he's in a cast, I'm phoning the police on you. Oh dear me, I sunk in my feet right then. I went home, now I... I I wasn't a messer in school, right? I was the type of kid that I was a lot smarter, okay? I let James do all the messing about. He got caught, and then I walked away scot-free, right? So this time I didn't. And I remember, some of you are laughing because you're like, that was you, right? Um, and I remember going home that evening. I felt so guilty. I felt so bad. I, I was like, How, what am I going to do? How can I do something to stay off school? Like, if I go in tomorrow and the police are there, like, I know I'm getting a beating when I go home. Like, this is, this is so bad, right? Anyways... Evening passes, the next morning I didn't sleep much. Went in the next morning and I see, I go in hoping that I wouldn't see the police. Didn't see the police, but seen James. Not on a cast, bushy eyed, laughing around. Turns out, I found out, he was out the night before playing football. He hadn't hurt himself, he just lied to get out early. And I thought, you are kidding me. Are you serious? I was guilty, feeling bad all night. Yes, you can tell I still have a bit of bitterness about that. Uh, miscarriage of justice, right? I'll maybe go see Anne afterwards, but... Um, I just remember that time. It was just something as I was preparing. I thought, man, miscarriage of justice right there, right? And we often can feel guilty or unguilty in those things. But what's the point? What do we do in our lives when we find ourselves feeling a sense of guilt, or, or whether true or false in our lives? And I want to look first at what Jesus didn't say about guilt and shame, okay? So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to go to Luke 23, okay? And in this account, we're going to see how Luke describes the final hours before Jesus' death. Okay, this is Luke 23, and it's going to be, I think, maybe starting from 32. Just to give you a bit of context, we're seeing the man who we are here today to celebrate, to, to praise, to worship. The man who, who came to save all of us from, you know, our sins and our spirit of stupidity, right? We're seeing him say, we're seeing instead of him wearing a golden crown, we're seeing him wearing, wear a crown of thorns. Instead of being surrounded by servants, we're seeing Jesus surrounded by thieves. And instead of sitting on a throne, we see him hanging on a cross. And Luke 23, 30, 32 says this, Two other men, both criminals, <coughs> were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. It's actually here we see how many people on a cross? Three, okay, remember three, okay. Because I'm going to ask you a, a math question later on and if you don't get it right, then you can feel guilty for not listening in church on Easter Sunday, right? Yeah, all you math, math teachers in the room are like, yes, I got this one. And there's more than one of you, okay. Don't know what that is. Um, 
But let's talk a moment. I don't know if you were anybody been able to on 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 Good Friday there we had a a really powerful service in, in Antrim and, and in future years we will do something very similar down here. But it's always good to trial it somewhere so that if it goes well, we'll steal it. If it doesn't go well, then they can keep it right. <laughs> um, and uh, there was this powerful betrayal of of different characters from from the crucifixion. There was one I don't know who the who the centurion was, but that man can act. He he terrified me a bit. Like you know, um, really really good. Tony, you'd make this. He looked a lot like you. I was just thinking that. Um, Anyways, sidetrack. When it comes to the crucifixion, again, I don't know if you watched The Passion of Christ or whatever it may be, but to be executed by crucifixion at that time was known as the most painful and brutal way to die. Not only was it physically painful, but it was also spiritually shameful to die on a cross. Has anybody ever heard of the term excruciating pain? You know, like the type of pain when you kick your toe off the table and you go, anybody else feel that, right? But X means out of. Scruciating, cruciating means cross or crucifixion. And when you put them together, that's what uh, excruciating pain comes from. It's where we get the word out of the cross, okay? And here's how it happened. First, they would take, they would start with a scourging. They would have stripped it down naked to, to further invoke shame. But then what they would have done is they would have taken a whip that was laced with nails with glass, with all types of metal, and they would have whipped you across your back 39 times. One would be bad enough, but 39 times to the point where your your inner organs, where your flesh would be torn. And so much so that when you would lose so much blood, you'd go into a state of shock. Then when you came around from that shock, they would make you carry your own cross on that bare back. They wouldn't give you a cushion, they wouldn't give you anything, and you would have to carry that for a period and a distance, up a hill to a place called Golgotha. And at that place, it's then, they would take seven inch stakes, and they would drive them through, tradition does say hands, but they would drive them through your wrists, where there would, where there would be a gap in the bone, and in the, on your feet. And that's where it would hold you. And that was designed because then, and only then, you would push up with your feet, and pull with your arms, because when you're crucified, all the weight is on your chest. And this would happen for about three to four days, depending on how long you would last. And each time to get a grasp of her, you would have to push yourself up in your crucified feet and with your crucified arms in these stakes to pull yourself up. And it would be three to four days max that you would be able to, to last in this. And the reason this was reserved, this type of punishment, this type of punishment by death was reserved for the worst of worst was because they had to pay three or four Roman guards to stand watch the whole time. So not only was it the most excruciating, painful way to die, the most spiritually shameful way to die, but it was actually the most expensive way to die. You would either go mad from baking in the sun, you would go mad from the sheer exhaustion. And on day number three or four, in an act of mercy, the Roman guards would take a club and they would have to break your knees so that you couldn't push yourself up for any air. Easter's not so pretty, is it? This was reserved for the worst of the worst criminals. It's when you broke significant laws. In other words, see the two people that Jesus is right and left? They weren't pickpockets. They had done something which we don't know of. Mentions them as thieves. But they had done something. 
that it was deserving of this act of punishment, of deserving for this most expensive, excruciating, and shameful way. They weren't pickpockets. And Jesus, we see, is hanging in the middle of this. Our Jesus, as the crowd are spitting on him, as the crowd are jeering at him, mocking him, saying, if you're the Messiah. And what does Jesus do in the middle of it? He looks up to heaven and he prays. Now, let me tell you what he doesn't do. <laughs> he doesn't say, Father, send your angel armies and wipe them all out. Because he had the power to do that. He didn't say, Father, send your bolts of lightning to take them out. He didn't say, Father, give them diarrhea so they all had to go to the toilet and then I could escape. All right? He didn't say things like that in order to, 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 we sang a song there where he endured the cross that he went. In fact, Luke 22, 39 says, one of the criminals who hung there hurtled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? In other words, the one who's supposed to overthrow the Romans? Save yourself and us. You see, this arrogant, very guilty man saw no need for a saviour, saw no need for help, decided to hurl insults at the one who was hanging next to him. However, the criminal on the other side had a completely different attitude. Verse 40 says this, he rebuked the criminal. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence as I am. We, listen to this, we are punished justly. For we are getting what our, disease, our deeds deserve. But this man, Jesus, he's done absolutely nothing wrong. I'd love you to, if you could, you'd, you'd know a lot of these statements, but if you could finish them, if you know them, okay. And you can just shout it out loud. What goes around, comes around. Your past will come back to haunt you. If you make your bed, you have to, or sleep in it, right? These are all different ways of saying you're going to get what you, you know them all well. I think you've been meditating them before you come. Do we need to have prayer minister at the end? I don't know, right? We all know them, okay? These are all different ways of saying you're going to get what you deserve. I want to ask you something. Who here, if there's a wee part of you, okay? I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up, all right? But has anybody here got a wee part of them? Not wee, wee, small, dark party, all right, that you, only you know about that secretly loves when somebody else gets what they deserve when they've done something wrong. When you, when, they, when you see them get punished for something that they did wrong. Anybody else? I remember a couple of years ago when I was in a queue of cars. We were heading into, uh, on the Belfast Road, and we're heading into uh, Cross Gar. Anybody know where the 40 mile an hour limit is? You know, when you're coming from the Downpatrick end, heading into Cross Gar. And I was in my wee, wee, wee uh, 1.2 Fiat Pinto. Thing was a flam machine, not really, right? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Anyways, <coughs> it's not COVID, don't worry. Anyways, as I was saying, we were. Uh, I was in a queue of cars, and we were driving in the in the um, in the cross car, and it's in my wee Fiat Pinto, and I couldn't t overtake any cars, and I'm driving along, not bitter about this at all. Driving along, and this guy in his fancy BMW flew past us, as acting as if he owned the road, right? And if you've ever noticed, when you come in the cross car, you, you have a you don't have a lot to a lot of time to stop. 
Anyways, he flies past like three or four cars and on down the road. And what he didn't know just after the 40 mile an hour zone was our little friends we like to call the speed van. Okay, not only did he get clocked, but he actually got pulled over. He was going that fast. And a wee part of me as I drove past thought, you get what you deserve, right? Anybody else done that? You see, there's a part of us that love seeing, I oh, Raymond's crossing his hands, I wouldn't do that, right? There's a part of us that loves seeing other people get what they deserve, except when it's us, right? Except when it's us. And in Luke 23, it says this, uh, 41, it says, we this is what the second criminal says. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, Jesus, he has done nothing wrong. You see, this very guilty but repentant sinner and, or criminal is acknowledging the fact that he's done something wrong. But then he looks to Jesus and he says this. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now let me tell you what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't look over to the second criminal and say, nah, nah, sorry, it's too late. Do you know what? I never really liked your face anyway. You always got on my nerves. Do you know that time when I was preaching on the, 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 the Sermon on the Mount? You had your chance then. It's too late. The boat sailed. See, what you've done, the life you've lived, I can forgive many, many things, but see what you've done, I can't. You went too far this time, it's far too late. We know that's not what Jesus said, right? Jesus spoke to this criminal who couldn't do a single thing to earn his right standing with God. To a person who couldn't do a single good work because his hands were tied to a tree. Who couldn't do a single thing to turn over a new leaf in his life because his feet were bound to the cross. He couldn't get baptized, he couldn't go to church, he couldn't give an offering. He actually couldn't even lift his hands to praise God because he was tied to a tree. This man who could do absolutely nothing to earn his right standing God. And Jesus looked at him and says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. You're forgiven. It's like he was saying, your debts, they're paid. The black marks against your name, they're ticked off. Even though you couldn't do anything to earn it, even though you couldn't do anything and you certainly don't deserve it, I will show you my kindness. I will show you my grace. I will show you that you can come and be with me. Are we not like this criminal who's come to Jesus in our lives? With our list of the mistakes that we've made in our lives? Wondering how could we ever tick off the black marks against their name? How could we ever begin to make up for the long list of guilt in our lives? And I remember for a period of my life that I, I, I didn't even want to, you know, talk about or even address the fact that God talks about sin, never mind preach about it. I only wanted to talk about the fact that we were new creations and that all the old are gone. Now that's very, very true. But in some way I was using it to forget about my past mistakes. But it was only until, you know when you have a, a scripture or, or a piece of scripture where you read it, but then it reads you. Anybody ever had that where you read a piece of scripture and you just go, this is reading me beyond what I can ever imagine. And, and it took a long time to get over it. But it's Ephesians 2, 3 to 5 and it says this, Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of punishment or wrath. But because of God's great love, because of his rich in mercy, 
made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. You see, Jesus came to make us alive. He didn't come to beat us round the head. We already do a good job of that ourselves. But life with him is supposed to have life. It's supposed to have figure. It's supposed to have passion. It's not supposed to be dead. You see, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Jesus didn't come to make you a good person. That's a byproduct of him making you alive. He came to bring us back to life. He came to set a fire in our bellies and hope in our hearts. And Jesus certainly didn't come for your behavior modification. He came for your heart transformation. In fact, being a Christian isn't just about becoming nice. It's about becoming more like Christ. See, for too long, church cultures have become obsessed of how we look on the outside rather than what God does on the inside. Which causes us then to bury our mistakes, to bury our past, instead of realizing he actually has come to help us with them. We don't have to do it on our own. Ephesians 2 goes on to say, it is for by his grace that we're saved, that through faith, that is not of ourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. He's that good that he has, he doesn't, you don't have to carry your own cross because he carried it for you. That's what grace means. Doesn't mean we don't do the work. Doesn't mean we don't do anything. But it means that he's carried the burden. Imagine this, the, the, the criminal, the repentant criminal who was on the cross. Imagine this. Imagine he heard Jesus say the words, you're forgiven. Now this didn't happen, but imagine then the Roman guards had heard that. And they thought, well, I may as well let this man go. Imagine then he would get off the cross, his wounds would heal, but years would be added to this man's life. From that moment, who do you think that man's life would be devoted to? After someone had died, so that he may live, so that years may be added to his life. Maybe you're here and you feel like life isn't really worth living. Maybe you're here and you're going, my life's not all that glitz and glamorous at the moment. Jesus came so that there may be years added to your life. Physically, but also spiritually and metaphorically on the inside. We all know who this man's life would be devoted to. Imagine then how much he would go around telling people about that as well. Because it was by Jesus' grace that he was saved. You see, what Jesus done for that criminal, he's done for you and me. There's nothing we can do to earn it. We certainly don't deserve it. But he took our place so that we don't have to spend the rest of our lives trying to appease for our mistakes, for our guilt and for our shame. Actually, he's come in the power of his grace to set us free. It's simple. When we have a passion for an understanding and awareness that we didn't get what we deserved. We didn't get what we deserved. We don't have to make up for our mistakes. Do we take ownership? Yes. But it's by his grace that we get to move through them. Psalm 103 says this. He does not punish us for all our sins. 
He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. That's how good he is. Now we can't quite get our heads around that because our earthly culture is very, very different. Because we all are looking for the speed vans in our lives to clock us and check us and give us a ticket. That's not what Jesus is about. You might be here and you're beating yourself up going, how do I appease? You're never ever going to psychologically and emotionally ever be able to do that. No amount of your giving is ever going to pay for it. Instead, we have to come for him, tell him, and then he can do a work, a miraculous work on the inside of us by the power of his spirit. How do I know? Because I've experienced it. I want to ask you, how many people were hanging on a cross? Three. No, that was only Adam. How many people were hanging on a cross? Three. While, while studying a bit for this, and I guess studying in general, there's this type of topic that likes to come up where it's, it's called numerology. Anybody fascinated about the study of numbers and what the meaning and the spiritual meaning behind numbers are? Okay, you not really are, okay? I wouldn't dive, dive too deep into it, but there's actually a Christian element to this where this, it's the study of spiritual meaning behind numbers that we see in, in, in Scripture. For example, number one always represents unity or the oneness of God, right? Four in Scripture tends to represent the earth. Five represents grace, Seven is perfection or holiness, which is often known as God's number. Six is actually one less than seven, which in other words is one less than perfection, falling short. That's usually man's number or the number of the evil one, right? Six, 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 meaning it's not perfect. Eight represents new beginnings. Ten is the number of testings. And 40 is the number of trials. The list goes on and on and on. But the number three, anybody know what the number three represents? Try and, well, that, that, we'll come to that. It represents completeness, wholeness, often as we represent triune nature of God. And we see that God's represented in those three natures, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're often seeing ourselves as triune beings, body, soul, and spirit. God's often described as having three qualities. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present. And in Jesus in Revelation, is described as the one who was, is, and is to come, right? In the Old Testament, we actually see patriarchal, three patriarchal fathers, which are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? The tabernacle was divided into three sections, the outer court, inner court, and the Holy of Holies. Daniel prayed three times a day. Jonah was in the belly of the whale for how many days? Three days. And in the New Testament, there was 27 books of the Bible. Now, 27 is three times three times three, right? Now, I know I'm pushing it, but I'm having fun, okay? Paul was blinded for how many days in the road to Damascus? Three. He prayed three times for the thorn in his flesh to be removed. And he was stranded for how many days in Malta when he was shipwrecked? Three, four. <laughs> Jesus, when he was born, had three wise men come and visit him and bring him three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? Oh, the list goes on, don't worry. At the age of 12, he was separated from his parents for how many days while he was in the temple? Three. His public ministry lasted for three days. Started at the age of 30, which is 10 times three, and lasted till he was 33. He had 12 disciples, three were in his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, who were with him at the Mount of Transfiguration and also in the Garden of Gethsemane, okay? Jesus predicted Peter would deny himself three times and then restored Peter another three times. Jesus raised three people from the dead, Jairus' daughter, the widow's, or, yeah, Jairus' daughter, the widow's son, and Lazarus. 
And three times he prayed while he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And tradition tells us he fell three times while carrying the cross. How many men were hanging on the tree that day? Three. And above Jesus' head was a sign that said, Here, Jesus, King of the Jews, written in three languages. Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Jesus, our King, placed on our cross on the third hour of the day and on the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., in earth's darkest moment, Jesus cried out three words of victory. Anybody know? He said, it is finished. And on, the, on that time, the earth shook, the veil was torn, and it fell over the earth. Darkness fell over the earth for three hours. There was no life, no hope, no light. Day one, nothing happened. Day two, nothing happened. But on the third day, when the women went to the tomb and they saw that the stone was rolled away, they saw that Jesus was no longer there because the light of the world had risen. You see, what he came to do was completed, was perfect, was finished. And it's because of that that he no longer holds our mistakes against us. We no longer have to work to cross the black marks off our lives. And because of what Jesus did for that repentant criminal, he'd done for us. Especially when we can do absolutely nothing to earn it, and we certainly don't deserve it. Maybe you're here and you're feeling dead on the inside. Maybe you're here and you're feeling buried on the inside. Remember, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Resurrection Sunday means we have the hope of a resurrected life. So if you're here and you feel spiritually dead, you're empty on the inside, the, tomb, the empty tomb shows us that he has the power to bring it back to life. If you feel mentally buried this morning, the empty tomb shows us that Jesus can roll the stones away in our mind. If you're here and you feel like your family's falling apart, the empty tomb shows us that Jesus hasn't finished writing the story. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, the empty tomb shows that he did it for you too. I would love to invite the band back up. And I'd like you to stand. No amount of preaching, no amount of singing can ever pierce in the heart's the reality of what it means to have a resurrected life without the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead coming and doing a work on the inside of you. We're all here this morning. We can't wait for a Sunday lunch. We can't wait for an explosion tomorrow. But if you're here and you've had guilt, you're here and it could be absolutely anything and you need the transform, transforming power of Jesus in your life, to come and do absolutely anything. That's what the empty grave shows us. So I'm going to invite the uh, ministry team up. And if there's anything at all, I want, I want, I encourage you, don't leave this morning. We can't obtain a resurrected life on our own. No amount of our wishful thinking our trying is ever going to do it. 
but we get to come to him who is seated in heavenly places, who looks at us and doesn't hold our, our crap against us. I know we live in cultures that do. I know we live in cultures that will, that will use every black book. You know, I was just talking to somebody this week about the, the political game that is in Northern Ireland, but also just in general, that we will bring up our stuff in order to chuck people under the bus. Remember, we've all messed up. We've all made mistakes, but he doesn't hold it as against us. This morning, he wants to come and really let you know, really, really, really let you know that where you're at and what you've done in your past is not where you have to remain. You do not have to remain in that tomb because he didn't. You don't have to stay dead because he didn't. He wants to come and raise you to life in a whole new way. So Father, this morning I pray for all of us. Come and resurrect us on the inside. You've already done it. Death's defeated because we will have eternity with you. But Father, would you bring your kingdom to come on the inside of us here and now? We don't have to wait until we die on this earth to experience that resurrection life that you died for. Jesus, you don't call us criminals. You don't call us sinners anymore. We threw off the old and we put on your new. The new work that you obtained on the cross through your, your death, burial and resurrection. You endured the cross so that pain wouldn't be the final say. So that peace, hope and joy will come and rule around us in our hearts. Father, we be real this morning. We threw off the Christian facade. We threw off the churchmanship culture. And Father, we come to you as we are. We strip ourselves bare of, of the, the, the masks and the facade. We come to you, God. Would you come and remove the things in our lives? Would you send us forward, God? We're hungry to be resurrected because only you can do it. And God, I pray that if we've lost hope, if we've lost joy, God, would you come and do something on the inside? Well, we know that a glimmer of light, a glimmer of light, God, that we have that is obtainable for us this morning. That is possible. So Jesus, we love you and we worship you.